uh, where we're spending our summer in the book of James, the New Testament book of James. We learned last week that it is a small but powerful book. It definitely outpunches its weight class. Uh, some people have called it the Proverbs of the New Testament, and, and, and that's a pretty fair comparison. Uh, with the exception that when I read through the book of Proverbs, I am encouraged to walk a straighter path. But when I study through the book of James, it's often a, a punch in the belly. It's often a, a kick in the seat of the pants. Uh, James is very pointed. James is very strong. And it tells us in very practical terms how it is that we ought to live the Christian life. Uh, last week was no exception. It was probably one of the more emotional messages uh, that we have preached in the last several weeks. And I think that'll be a common experience as we go through this book. This week certainly will be no exception. So last week we talked about one inevitability in every person's life, and that was hardship. You know, everybody is going to suffer. And we learned last week at the end of the message as we put these verses together and tried to just communicated in one or two sentences, we said that, that while everybody will experience hardship, God has the ability to remove all of that from our lives. But God in his wisdom and in his goodness saw that hardship coming towards you in life before you ever knew that it was, it was near. And God could have removed that from your life. But he decided that he could bless you more by allowing you to go through it than he could have blessed you by removing it. Now, it took a whole hour really to unpack that and understand that, but that's the message of, of James chapter 1 and the first few verses. Today, we're going to look at the second inevitability of life, and that is temptation. Just as all of us are going to face hardship, all of us as well face temptation. That is our greatest enemy. And so last week we learned what should we do when we face hardship. Today I want us to learn from James what should we do when we face temptation. When I think of temptation, I can't help but think about the three most famous Bible sins. What do you think those would be? What are the most famous events in the Bible that started with a temptation and ended with sin. I think without question, number one would be the sin of Adam and Eve. And so you know that story, Adam and Eve, God has created them. Uh, they have um, just really a perfect life. God has, has put them in this paradise, in this garden, and he has provided for every need. They have everything they could have ever imagined. And on top of that, they had a very close walk with the Father. The Bible says that they walked with the Father in the morning. And so despite the fact that they had everything, the deceiver comes along and says, don't focus on what you have. I want you to focus on the one thing that God has not given you. And he points to this one tree, this one fruit and they take their focus off all that God had blessed them with and they focus on the one thing that he did not give to them and they were tempted and they sinned and they lost everything. They were kicked out of the garden, they lost the paradise, they lost the closeness with God, they experienced sin. It had effects in their lives for years, for generations and even to this day. They lost everything because temptation led to sin and it led to it led to death in many ways. 
Well, I think the, the second most famous sin in the Bible uh, probably is the sin of David and Bathsheba. And everybody here knows that story, right? It's almost the same story as the Adam and Eve story. David had everything. God had made him king. David had this power and this authority and these riches. David had every need met in a, in, in, in a unique way. And more than that, David had a special relationship with God. The Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. He obviously had the hand of God in his life. You can see that through many of the victories that he had on the battlefield and in his wisdom and leadership. And you see it perhaps most clearly in his writing of much of the book of Psalms. David had everything. But then the tempter comes along and tells him that there is a pretty girl that lives next door and that's one thing you don't have. And though David had all the companionship that he could ever want, he now focused his attention on the one thing he couldn't have, and he had that. You talk about a me too moment. Uh, he, he, he was the king. He could have whatever he wanted. And so, and so one thing led to another, and he had this, uh, uh, this uh, sinful relationship with Bathsheba, and then he lost everything. Uh, he remained a king, but the, but the sweetness of his reign left him. If you, if you look at the life of David post Bathsheba, you see that it's very different than the life of David before Bathsheba. He lost the joy of his salvation. There were consequences. There was a child conceived as a result of that relationship and, and that child died. And, and then even for generations, you see the, the waves of his sin impacting the lives of the nation of Israel. David was tempted and he sinned and he lost it all. And so then I, I don't know exactly what would be the third most famous sin in the Bible, uh, but arguably at least it would be the sin of, of Judas. So Judas, you know that story, one of the 12 disciples, Judas had everything. I mean, he had a close relationship with Jesus. He heard the teachings of Jesus. He was there for the miracles of Jesus. He saw Lazarus come back to life. He had an opportunity to reign with Jesus for eternity. But he was tempted by a bag full of silver. And he gave it all up for just a little bit of money. He was crushed with such guilt that almost immediately after the sin, he gave the silver back and he killed himself because he couldn't handle the guilt. See, temptation and sin are serious and, and they do some things to us. Let, let me give you just three S's. And maybe you can remember these because they all start with S. And I want to apologize ahead of time. One of these words is a word you may not let your kids say. Uh, and now the pastor is going to say it and it's just going to confuse things at your house. But just give me some grace. It's the only word I can think of. Uh, so let me tell you the three things that, uh, that sin does for us, that temptation and sin do. Number one, here's the, here's the tough word. Is, is it just makes us stupid. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, it seems like when we're tempted and when we begin to give in to sin that our IQ drops about 30 points. I mean, we, we just do things that if, that if we had a, a better head on our shoulders, we wouldn't do in a million years. It makes us stupid. Secondly, it makes us short-sighted. We consider the, the moment, but we don't consider tomorrow or a year from now or our legacy. And then finally, it makes us self-centered. We just... We're just thinking about ourselves. I mean, you think about those three stories, Adam and Eve. 
What, what, what kind of stupid decision was that? That God had given them everything. They could not even imagine something that they would have desired that God had not provided to them until this snake comes up to them and says, why won't God let you eat that fruit? And they decided to give up all that God had given for this, for this fruit that the snake said that they would eat. I mean, that's about the dumbest thing I can imagine. But sin makes us stupid. It makes us short-sighted. David, for, for one night of pleasure, gave up this authority, gave up this moral authority, gave up this spiritual authority, gave up a legacy, gave up sacrifices in the lives of his children and his grandchildren for just one night of pleasure. And, 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 and how could he have been more short-sighted than that? David was a man before that that had been known for his wisdom, for his leadership acumen, had, had been known for the, for the ability to look at a situation and then look down the road and make a decision that would lead him to where he wanted to go. It makes us short-sighted, and then it, it just makes us selfish. I mean, you see that in all three of these cases, but uh, if we look at Judas... Uh, all he considered was himself. He didn't consider Jesus. And, you know, in the, in the providence of God, God used even the sin of Judas to, to accomplish his purposes. But, but Judas wasn't considering Jesus. He wasn't considering the other disciples. He wasn't considering anything except himself. I can buy me a new iPhone if I have 30 pieces of silver. That's probably what he was thinking. And so, so he, he does this terrible thing because he's so short-sighted, sin. Is, is serious. And so why is it that, that all of us are guilty of repeating history? We repeat biblical history. We repeat the, the sinful history of the people around us. And we repeat our own history. Why do we do this? What is it that we don't know that we need to know to keep us from continuing uh, this, uh, this pursuit of sin? Well, James is going to tell us. And in just three verses... Uh, right here in James chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 13. It's page 1071 if you're using one of the Bibles in the rack. But in just three verses, James is going to explain the science of temptation. This is one of the, one of the clearest expressions, maybe the clearest expression of the science of temptation, exactly how this works, uh, that you find anywhere in Scripture. And James is going to dispel five myths that we often believe about temptation and, and myths that, that you likely believe. Now, maybe you won't believe all five of these, but you've come here this morning as a Christian who, who loves God and has a passion for living a holy life, but, but you believe at least two or three of these five myths about temptation, but James clears these up in just three verses. So let's look at James chapter one, verse 13. Uh, I just want us to give special reverence to God's word. We won't do this every week, but oftentimes I want to do this just because I want the next generation to know. I want all generations to know that this is not just a book on a shelf, but this is the word of God. And so to give special reverence to that, can I ask you to stand as we read three verses? James 1.13 says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire, 
And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Please be seated. All of us face temptation. James makes that clear. So what do we need to know about that temptation that'll help us to win more battles? Well, five things. Five things that we see in these three verses. Five things that temptation is not. Things that we sometimes think this describes temptation, but James says, no, temptation is not these five things. He's going to dispel these five myths. So let me give them to you. Number one, temptation is not from God. Temptation is not from God. That's verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. He says, temptation doesn't come from God. Now, I'll just be honest with you. When I began to study this, I just thought that was a throwaway verse. I know that temptation is not from God. And all the people I'm preaching to know that temptation is not from God. I've never heard someone say, God is tempting me to evil. We know that. So why is this verse here? Well, every verse is important. Don't ever think when you look at a verse that that verse just says something so obvious that it doesn't matter. If we think that, it's because we don't fully understand what it means. And so I began to just dig down in verse 13. What is he saying? I began to study and to pray and to, and to compare these words with other words in Scripture. What does he really mean? How is this important to us that, that God does not tempt us? That just seems too obvious. Well, I think we do fall for this myth. I think we do blame our temptation on God. We just are a little bit more savvy than to say God is tempting me. We say it differently. And I think there's two, there are two ways that we accuse God of being the source of temptation. One way is we say this, I can't avoid sin because that's how I'm made. I think we say that often. I can't avoid sin. That's just how I'm made. Everybody is a sinner. Nobody's perfect. We can't help it. There are just certain desires in me that have to be fulfilled. And when we say that because of our makeup, we don't have a choice, when we excuse sin by saying, well, we're sinners and everybody sins, then indirectly we're saying that God is the source of temptation. And he wants us to know, first of all, God is not the source of temptation. And it is not true that you can't avoid sin because of the way that you're made. Now let's, let's dig into that a little bit because I, I, I want you to be convinced. There is a little bit of truth to the statement, I can't help it, I'm a sinner. And sometimes you'll hear people say that. There is a little bit of truth to that. The Bible says that when we're born, that we inherit a sin nature through our father. So Adam and Eve sinned, and Adam is the federal head of the race, has passed down sin from generation to generation. I was born a sinner. And before we come to know Christ, it is true that we can't help but sin. I'm not saying we don't have personal responsibility. We certainly do. But before Christ, I was a sinner and therefore I sinned. I, I, I didn't have the capacity 
to say no to every temptation and to say no to every sin, I was a slave to sin, is the way the Bible explains it in Romans chapter 6. But when I became a child of God, if you remember last week, we said that some parts of the Bible talk about how to get to God. Some parts of the Bible talk about how to walk with God if you're already there. James is the second theme. James is about how to walk with God. This is written to Christians. As a Christian, the Bible makes it clear that when I was adopted into the family of God, that God changed something. I am no longer a slave to sin. Sin has lost its authority in my life. Let me just read this to you. And I think I can show these verses to you on the screen. Romans six seventeen. Thank God that although you used to be slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. As Christians, we can't say that I sin because that's who I am. Because it's not who I am any longer. Sin was on the throne of my life. It was my king. It was my master. I was his slave. Sin was on the throne. But when I became a Christian, sin got kicked off the throne. Now God is on the throne. And sin is on the outside of me with a bullhorn urging me to do things that I no longer have to do. And so let's don't blame our sin on God. Let's don't blame our temptation on God by saying, I can't avoid it. It's how I'm made. It's not how you are made or at least remade. Another way I think we blame our sin on God, our temptation on God is we say this, I can't avoid this sin because of my circumstances. See, sometimes we say, I can't avoid it because it's who I am. It's the way I was made. That's blaming it on God. But, but sometimes we say, I can't avoid sin because of my circumstances. And that's still blaming it on God because who is Lord over our circumstances? God is Lord. And so if I say, I just got in such a pickle that I couldn't do anything but sin, we're saying that God is responsible for our temptation. And that's just not true. You can't say that my marriage was so bad that I didn't have any other choice but to have an affair. You cannot say my finances were so bad that I had no other choice. You can't say my boss was so unreasonable that I did what I did or the pressure was so great or I have been single so long I don't have a choice. No, your circumstances, there's always a way out. No matter your circumstances, God always gives you a way out. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Again, I, I think I have this for you in a slide. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. That means we all face the same kinds of sins. But God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will always provide a way out so that you may bear up under it. He, he has always given us a way out. Let's don't blame our sin, our temptation on God. That's what verse 13 says. Let's don't fall into this myth that it's God's fault because this is how he made us or it's God's fault because he let me get in such a terrible situation. No, sin never comes from God. We can always say no. Well, there is a second myth. Myth number one, temptations from the Lord. 
Verse 13 dispels that. Myth number two, temptation is the true satisfaction of a desire. Now look with me back at verse 14. Scripture says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Now, I studied that, that phrase, evil desire. In the original, it's just one word. Uh, if you have a New American Standard Bible, it'll just say the word lust. And I'm certainly not smarter than the Bible translators. Uh, that, that's a, you know, a, a proper translation because that's, that's the context of the, of the verse. But, but I studied that word. It's, uh, the Greek word is used 38 times in the New Testament. It's used 38 times in the Septuagint, if you know what that is. And, and many of those times it's used to refer to an evil desire, just as it's translated here, a sinful, lustful desire. But many times it's just used to refer to a desire, just a desire. It could be a good desire, could be a bad desire. In, in fact, I, I want to show this to you because I want you to have some evidence for what I'm about to propose. In Philippians 1.23, the apostle Paul used that word when he says, I long to depart and be with Christ. He said, I desire to be with Christ. He used the same word. Now that wasn't an evil desire. He wasn't, uh, it wasn't a lustful desire. It was just a desire, a good desire to be with Christ. In fact, the Bible uses this word. Jesus used this word. When he said in Luke twenty two fifteen, I fervently desired to eat the Passover with you. Uh, Jesus is, is talking about his desire. Now, it wasn't an evil desire. It was a good desire. So this word desire can refer to both good desires or bad desires. So, so with that in mind, look at verse 14 again. But each person is tempted when what happens? When he is drawn away and enticed by his own desire. Good or bad, his own desire. Now, God has created us with desires. When God created me, he gave me desires. Uh, we have a desire for food, right? We have a desire for acceptance. I want people to love me and, and, and want to spend time with me, right? We all have a desire to be liked. Uh, we have a desire for sexual intimacy. That's uh, the way God made us. That's something he created in us. And every time God has created a desire... He has created a godly way to satisfy that desire. Does that make sense? So God creates a desire, but then he has a way that that desire can be satisfied, and it is a godly path. But Satan comes along, and he takes that same desire that we have, and he offers another way to satisfy it. Does that make sense? And, and, and here's what temptation is. Temptation is when you look away from God's plan to satisfy that desire. The desire is not temptation. The desire is not sin. You have a desire, but when you look away from God's satisfaction for that desire and you look towards Satan's satisfaction, well, then that's the beginning, beginning of sin. We have a, I shouldn't tell you this, but we, we have a desire for food, Right? And so I've been trying not to eat so many donuts. In fact, I hadn't had a donut in months. And uh, today's daddy, donuts with daddy. So, so it's Melanie's fault today. But um, <laughs> before she tempted me, uh, I woke up this morning and I was headed to church. And I used to, months ago, there are so many donut stories in this town. I have never seen. <laughs> New York City doesn't sell as many donuts as Nacogdoches. 
And so I used to, um, I used to go, in fact, I know the donut schedules. So, uh, and this morning I, I wasn't up early, but I can tell you that the one across from Fredonia Hill Church, the one not next to it, but across from it, they pull out, I should, I'm tempting people, aren't I? They pull their apple donuts, they pull them out of the fryer about 4.15 in the morning. I don't know how, I just, I read that somewhere or something. Or I, <laughs> so this morning I was on, I was on the way to church and I was hungry. I hadn't had any breakfast and I thought it's Father's Day. You know, we can always find a way to justify. I don't know what Father's Day has to do with donuts, but I thought it was Father's Day. I deserve donuts. Now, God made me hungry. Okay, that's not sin. But God offered, God has a way to satisfy that hunger. I've got a granola bar in my office. Satan has another way to satisfy that <laughs> desire. And so sin happens when you take your focus off God's way and you put it on Satan's way. I didn't have the donut. So just, just in case you're wondering, and since my wife is in the service. <laughs> now you see that right here in verse 14. Because he uses really a hunting, fishing illustration. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed, when he is lured away. Now, I'm, I don't know a lot about fishing, uh, but if you're going to fish for a bass, God has created that fish, and God has made that fish hungry for worms. I guess that's what you fish with here for bass, uh, most places. So, so God has made that bass hungry for worms. And then God has provided some worms for that bass to eat. But if you want to catch the fish, then you need to be the tempter, right? And so you put a little plumper looking worm or pretend worm on a, on a string with a hook hidden in it and you throw it in front of the bass and you wiggle it around just right. If, you, if you're a, a good fisherman and you know how to do those things and, and that fish is, that, that has been given that desire for hunger by God and has, there are ways that that bass can be satisfied but now his attention is drawn to your lure. And you have drawn him, drawn him away. Well, now what, what myth are we talking about here? Well, temptation is not the true satisfaction of desire. Oftentimes we will believe that I am tempted and the only way to satisfy my desire is to go to what Satan offers. What should we do when we're tempted? What should we do when a desire is awakened in us? We're hungry. Uh, we have a desire for... For, for acceptance, we have a desire for, for security and for money. We have a desire for, for, for intimacy. When we have a desire, what should we do? We should look, we should be intentional, and we should look for how does God, how has he provided for that desire to be satisfied? Because he has. God has provided a, a, a way for you to have financial security. God has provided a way for you to have uh, sexual intimacy. God has provided a way for you to have, have your belly filled. God has provided a way. And so instead of just defaulting to the, to the lure, to the worm that, that, that Satan dangles in front of you, we must look for a way to satisfy that desire uh, that God has provided. If, if you have a desire to be accepted by people, Okay, what does Satan do? You, you, want to be, you want to be accepted by a group of people. You want to be loved and cared for. You, you, you want to be liked by a group of people. So Satan will say, you should gossip. If you'll just tell them some, some interesting stories that you've heard that you believe are true, or maybe you're not even sure that they're true, you know, people are drawn to that, right? And so I could gossip. I could tell what I know or what I think I know 
and I'll be liked. And so Satan, you're, you want to be liked by a group of people? You want to be a part of the circle? That's a natural desire. God wants us to be in community. And so Satan says, you tell some stories. But God says, no, you go to those people and, and you serve them and you love them. See, God has his way for that desire to be satisfied. But the way God says you're accepted in a circle is by serving and, and, and loving those people. Satan says it's by telling them some juicy stories. And so when we're tempted, we need to look for how does God, how is God going to satisfy this desire? So, so uh, temptation is not the true satisfaction of desire. I got to go a little quick faster here. Number three, temptation is not the result of a stumble. Have you ever heard, this bothers me greatly. Have you ever heard somebody say of, of somebody else who has um, been found guilty of some great sin, that that person fell into sin. Well, we all use that expression. He, he fell, he's fallen away. Now, the problem with that is that doesn't communicate the same as what the Bible communicates when it comes to sin. People don't fall into sin. You know, like you're, you're walking down the sidewalk and you, and you hit, a, hit a bump or, or something and you, and you fall, like it was unexpected. That's not how people give in to temptation. There's never a fall. It is a process. So I, I want you to look back at, we've read verse 14 a couple of times. Let's, let's focus on 15 now. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. See, when James talks about sin, he doesn't talk about it as a fall. He talks about it as a process. And you can go through the process. There's a desire that's wrongly directed. Uh, then the God-given satisfaction for that desire is rejected. Then sin is conceived. Then sin grows bigger and bigger and bigger and ultimately brings death. Now, when we look at the life of a person who has fallen, you've heard they, they just got arrested for something or they just had an affair or they just lost their family or whatever. We say that they have fallen. The reason we say that is we didn't see all the steps in the meantime because they were hidden. All we saw was the last step where the sin became public and it looked like they were living a godly life and just fell. Well, you see here from James 1, 14 and 15 that, that nobody ever falls. It's a process. It's a hundred tiny steps that leads, leads to what we call a fall. Uh, now, why is, that, why is it bad then that we use the word fall or stumble because it leads us to a place of arrogance. It, it leads us to say things like this. I would never have an affair. I would never get so angry I punched somebody in the nose. I would never be so disturbed that I would verbally abuse someone. I would never steal $1,000. Now, what's, what's wrong with us saying that? Now, by the way, and this will sound arrogant, but you hang with me a moment. That's true of me. I can tell you right now, I would never have an affair. At least that's what I think. And the reason why we would say that, and wrongly, by the way, the reason why we would say that is because we're thinking in the short term. I'm not going to go from how I'm living today and by the end of this day have an affair. I can't see any, any set of circumstances that would lead me between now and when I go to bed to having an affair. But see, that's not how affairs happen. 
No, affairs happen with a thousand little steps. I mean, it might be true. I mean, we might puff our chest with pride and say, I would never steal a thousand dollars. Well, what we mean is I wouldn't do it today, but I could very easily get on a path that little bit at a time might lead me to do those things six months from now or a year from now. See, we, we, we declare that we would never do things because we think people fall into sin when the Bible says, no, sin is this slow progression. Now, this is hard to explain, so I thought about, I thought about explaining it this way. Perhaps this, this will clear things up. I think the fact that, we, that sin is a progression means that there are some changes we need to make. We need to, first of all, have a new vocabulary. We must not say that people fail, that someone fell in sin. Rather, we should say that the road that she was traveling came to its expected destination. Do you see the difference? There have been a couple of high-profile ministers in the last few months fall. Um, Ministry successful going forward. Everything looked great on the outside. And bang, had an affair and they lost it all. And people were saying they fell. No, they didn't fall. The road that they were traveling on and had been traveling on for who knows how long arrived at its expected destination. It just looks like they fell from our perspective. If we knew the whole story, they didn't fall. They, they were on this process. So we need to have a new vocabulary. Secondly, we need to have a new humility. Don't say, I would never, whatever. Rather, say, I could easily start down a path that could end at that sin. That's why I need to be very careful about about the smaller things in life because while while I'm not going to do those things today, I could find myself on a path of compromise a little bit at a time that might end there. And then finally, we need to have a new concern The concern is not, is this wrong? That's not the question we should ask. We should ask this, where is this leading? Where is this leading? Because sometimes we we fool ourselves by engaging in some activity that we, we have convinced ourselves it's not wrong in and of itself, but what it is, it is, it is inching our way toward disaster. So if you've got little kids, you live on a busy street. Now, what do you tell your kids? Let's say the traffic, you know, the 50 miles an hour, trucks are going up and down your street. And so there's 50 feet between, between your house and the street. Do you tell your kids that it's okay for them to go 49 feet, your little toddlers, that that it's okay to go 49 feet and 11 and a half inches, but that's as far as you can go. No, you don't tell them that. You tell them they gotta stay way, way back. You get upset with them when they get 10 feet away from the house. Now there's no danger 10 feet away from the house, right? Why are you upset? You're not upset because you think at 11 feet they're gonna get run over. You're upset because the general direction they're going will eventually put them in the street. We, um, you know, people know that pornography is sin and it is a step toward greater sin. But, but, but you know, oftentimes people will be on the internet and all these things pop up that are not pornography. They're just sort of in between. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not, it's not pornography to watch the YouTube videos. It's, but, but, but it's, 
it's skirting close to it. And so we justify it by saying, well, it's not sin. It's not sin. But that's not the question we should be asking. You might convince yourself it's not sin, but where, where is it leading? Where, what's going to be the next step and the next step and the next step? And where's going to be the destination? See, sin is not the result of a stumble. Temptation is not the result of a stumble. Number four, uh, temptation is not manageable. If you look back at verse 15, he says that sin is conceived, it gives, it, it's born, and then it grows and grows and grows and ultimately leads to death. Uh, sin, sin is a progression. Now, we often think that when sin happens in our lives that we can then manage it. Sin happens and I'm going to manage it. That's our strategy. But the Bible says that you can't manage sin. Sin always grows. The burden is going to be greater. The, the, the consequences are going to be more severe. It grows. It metastasizes, which means sin always spreads to other areas of our lives. You, you can't just have sin over here in this part of life and it not affect every other part of your life. And, and, and sin carves ruts into your life, spiritual ruts that make it hard for you to get out. The longer you embrace a sin, the more difficult it will be to ever overcome it. We can't have this idea that we're going to manage our sin. I'll give you some practical examples. You, th this is more and more of a problem in the, in the church. Uh, you can't manage pornography. There are too many, too many people who come to church every week. There are people listening to me right now, both here and, and on television. And, and, and your, your strategy has been just to, just to manage pornography. I'm going to keep it. I mean, it's just going to be private. It's just going to be this, this small area of my life. And it's, it's, it's not going to turn into anything else until it does. You can't manage sin. You can't manage sexual promiscuity. You can't manage alcoholism. You, sin can't be managed. It's not manageable. So what should we do? Well, we should confess it and kill it. Uh, one of my favorite verses, Romans 8, 13, says that we ought to, we ought to kill, we ought to mortify uh, the deeds of the body. Kill it at its roots. Kill its first appearing, its earliest appearing. There's a, there's a Bible story, historical story in the book of 1 Samuel that, uh, that nobody ever preaches on, including me, but I'll, I'll venture to do it a little bit here. Uh, it's just, it's just too violent, uh, but I want you to hear it. Uh, Saul is the king of Israel. He has been given instructions to wipe out this group of people, uh, because they are really the source of sin in that whole part of the world. And they had done terrible and violent things and they continued to introduce sin into other, into other groups of people, including the Israelites. And so God told Saul to destroy them all. So Saul takes his military and he, he fights with them and he destroys most of them. But he keeps the king alive. And he decides, you know, I mean, we've dealt with most of this sin, but I, you know, I sort of want to keep the king alive. I don't want to deal with all of the sin. I, I think a little bit is okay. Well, then the preacher, Samuel, shows up. And let me just read to you what happened. Uh, so Samuel shows up and he says, bring me King Agag. That was his name. What an unfortunate name. I hope that's not your middle name or something. But, um. So he says, bring me King Agag. And Agag came to him trembling. And Samuel declared, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless. Isn't that great drama? And then he hacked Agag to pieces 
before the Lord. Now, wouldn't this make a great vacation Bible school skit? (laughs) You bring somebody up and they stand before the preacher and the preacher takes out a knife and he cuts them into pieces right there before everybody. Now, why, why? This seems absurd. Well, what you see here, I mean, there's a whole sermon we could preach about this, but what you see here is God's attitude towards sin. And what you see here is what our attitude should be. Sin shouldn't be managed. Sin shouldn't be managed. Listen, it should be killed. How did Jesus say it? Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, Jesus said, and throw it away, for it's better to lose one of your body parts than to be thrown into hell. So we have this attitude that we're going to manage sin, but God says we should have the attitude that sin should be destroyed. Don't fall for the myth that sin is manageable. And then finally, uh, temptation is not inconsequential. And we have this attitude, I think, about sin. And I I struggle with this. I think every Christian does. No, not every Christian, but I do. Sometimes we don't take sin seriously enough because we just know that we're children of God. My sins are all forgiven. I've got heaven in my future and my sins will not impact my eternal life. We, we know that we've been forgiven by the blood of Christ. And so we come to this conclusion, while we would never express it like this, we, we come to this conclusion that sin's just not, a, it's not really that big a deal. Until we get to the end of verse 15 and he says, um, you know, the sin is, 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 is conceived, it grows up. And the end of verse 15, it gives, uh, when it's fully grown, it gives birth to death. Now, what, is, what does he mean? He's talking to Christians. It gives birth to death. Sin brings death. Well, I think that's, I think there's two things that means. First of all, it does mean something to someone who's not a child of God. If you're, if, if you're not a child of God, sin brings death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And one day you're going to die and you're going to stand before God in judgment. And, and you, th- you will think that you're going to stand and defend your case by weighing your sins against the sins of many other people who, from your perspective, have sinned much worse than you. And you think that you're going to fare pretty well in that comparison. But when, God's, when God stands there, he's going to say the only comparison that's going to be made here is the comparison between you and my son. And my son did not sin, and you did sin, and you are condemned because of your sin. There are no second chances. Sin brings death. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, that's your only hope, is to put your trust in Christ. Why does sin not bring death if I'm in Christ? Because Christ has died for my sins. My sin still brings death. It's just that it'll either bring death, eternal death to me, or it bring death to Christ. Christ is standing in my place. That's what it means to be a child of God. But this means something to Christians as well. What does it mean for us that sin brings death? Well, he's not talking about losing your salvation. He's not talking about the loss of eternal life. He's talking about death to your relationships. He's talking about death to your ministry. He's talking about death to your joy. See, every time you sin, it introduces a little bit of death to the vitality and the joy and the abundant life that God 
desires. Let's don't think sin doesn't matter. I had a, a friend in Ohio who actually it was the wife of a friend in Ohio and she had, and I meant to, to pull one of our doctors here aside and this morning and get some more information about exactly what this is. So I, I probably get some of this wrong, but she had on her arm a, uh, a necrotic wound. Have you ever heard of that? It was just a little bit bigger than a quarter. She was a healthy, healthy woman. I mean, as far as I know, I mean, it's a bit, very healthy. And, but a part of her had just died. It was, it was black. It was this, just black as coal. It was just a part of her skin, just about, about an inch and a half, two inches in diameter. And I, I don't recall what they had to do. I remember it was pretty serious. They, they, they had to do a bunch of stuff. I don't I remember what. I mean, she's fine now. But I, I can remember it, it, she showed it to me, and she, she stood there. I mean, she's, she's healthy. But a part of her, she had death on her. Part of her just died. When, when we sin spiritually, now, while I have complete forgiveness in Christ, a part of us, it brings death. It brings death. Now, I, I want to sum this up. I, I want to end all these messages with a real practical word that explains the scripture that will, I mean, it's a little bit of a twisting of the knife, but it's, 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 it's what James is trying to do. So, so, so let me do this. I want to read to you, and I know we're out of time, but I want to read to you just a, about a half dozen verses. And I won't give a lot of commentary on these I just want them to sort of sink in. We'll show them to you on the screen as we read them. I just want them to sort of sink in, and I want to make one statement at the end. So listen to this. Romans 8, 13, which we read or referred to a, a few minutes ago, which basically says either sin dies or you die. If you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Death or life. Paul talks about his attitude towards sin in Ephesians 6.12 when he says, I struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers of darkness. And he goes on. You notice Paul, the apostle, he says, I'm struggling with sin. He wasn't casual about it. He said, I'm, I'm fighting. And in case that's not strong enough, listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, I discipline my body to bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I might not myself be disqualified. He says, I, Paul was in such a fight with sin. He says, I'm, I'm disciplining my body. I'm, I'm bringing extra discipline on my, on my life to, to try to get out from under the sin. Hebrews 10, 26. If we deliberately go on sinning after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Just let that sink in. You keep on sinning, Verse 27, but rather a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Verse 28, if anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? And that passage ends in verse 31 by saying it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now those verses all really require some explanation, but I think you get the, you get the message. And so here's, here's what I want to end with. There are two things that are true of every genuine Christ child. 
every, every genuine, I said that wrong, every genuine believer, every genuine child of God, there are two things that are true. Number one, you rest in the knowledge that your sins are forgiven. I know my sins are forgiven. I'm not nervous about it. I'm not scared of judgment. I, I, don't, I don't feel this wall between me and God. I rest in the assurance my sins are forgiven. But number two, we strive for perfect obedience. You see, a genuine Christian will know that there's no condemnation. I am completely forgiven. But a genuine believer will not be cavalier about sin, but will be fighting and striving and struggling and disciplining himself to live a life that honors God. Now, if either one of those two things is not true of you, that's a sign of a grave problem. If either one of those things, if you don't rest in the fact that your sins are forgiven, then there's a problem. And if you're not, if you don't have an attitude of striving for holiness, there's a serious problem. Now with your head bowed and eyes closed, let's end this way. We're going to stand and sing and there will be people here you can talk to, counsel with and respond. But would you work out either with the help of others or just on your face before the Lord if these two things are not true in your life, you need to work that out. That is a sign of a real spiritual problem. There are people here that help you, encourage you, answer questions, but we can't leave without resolving those two things as true in our lives. Father, give us wisdom, give us humility, and help us to respond so that we walk with you in a way that honors you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Thank you.